Good afternoon, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started so we can be mindful of the time. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome. We hope to come back. We hope to tell everyone you know. Uh, again, our goal, we would love to see this place packed out. Standing room only would be great. We have plenty of food. Uh, the food is provided by Ruth's Chris, and so we have Jeff Conway and his staff to thank for that. Each week, a tangible way to show your thanks is to leave a nice donation in the box here. That goes to the ladies in the back that come and bring us this food every week. So we are in Exodus, going through the book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're in the section that a lot of people skip over if they read it all. Uh, we're in the covenant code in Exodus. This is to recap. Last week, like we talked about, like a, like a Google Maps, you know, you zoom out to see where you are in the lay of the land, and then you zoom in to get the right street address. So, uh, zooming out, we're at the base of Mount Sinai. Israel's camped around after having come out of Egypt, having been freed from slavery for 450 years, give or take, and they have now become a, a new people. And they are pledging themselves to God to be his people in the promised land that he's going to bring them to. It's all at this confluence in history where God's bringing them out of Egypt. So they're down here in Egypt. He's bringing them up out of Egypt. And God's judgment on this land of Canaan, where Abraham, their ancestor, used to live, it's the timing is so that by the time Israel comes out of Egypt and into Canaan, the Canaanites, the people that God promised 400 years before that he would one day ultimately judge for their wickedness, are going to be, in the words of the Bible, ripe for judgment. In other words, God will have put up with the Canaanite evil for so long, 400 years, that he can't put up with it any longer. And at that time, in his sovereignty, will be just the time when Israel is coming out of Egypt into the land that he had promised Abraham. So all of this goes back to Genesis 15. And what we're seeing in Exodus is the unfolding of that. But before God sends them into the land, he's got to prepare them what type of people they're supposed to be when they get into that land. So he's given them the beginning of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, as we saw, Exodus 20. And those Ten Words are basically their overview of how they're going to be as a people. And then the covenant code section, so they hear the Ten Words, they freak out because they actually hear God say those commandments. And they send Moses. You go talk to him, Moses, because we're scared. So Moses goes and gets the rest of what we're in right now, which is the covenant code. And this is the fleshing out of those ten laws. This is the filling out into everyday society. So last week, we're in Exodus 22. Last week, the laws that he gave had to do with, uh, with property and with, with neighbor relations. And what happens when there's a dispute between neighbors or between family members or God is concerned with keeping a sense of shalom, a sense of wholeness, a sense of peace within the community, and preventing things that would come in and would fracture that. Preventing things that would come in and cause division, dissension, um, blood feuds, family, um, families against families for generations, all the stuff that, that all people groups in all places around the world have always experienced and dealt with. So God is trying to mitigate against those things by giving them laws, but he's giving them laws that fit them as a society, as an agrarian, pastoral, uh, pastoral like in the sense of pasture, society, uh, not a modern 21st century urban society. 
So the biggest thing to do when you're reading these Exodus laws is to keep in mind that he's writing these laws to the people in the ancient Near East land of Canaan under the covenant at Mount Sinai. We as Christians are not people in the ancient Near East. We are not largely agrarian culture, and we are not under the Sinai covenant. So there's some transferring that we have to do. So when we go to these laws, we can't just say, oh, we'll read the law and then we'll just keep that one. It doesn't work that way. Old Testament law doesn't work that way. We are not the people to whom this was written. So we have to factor that into account. And what we have to do is see that Old Testament laws were given, uh, they, were, they were case laws and they were examples so that the judges would apply these laws to uh, situations where they applied without having to keep them to the letter. Very different than modern laws. We've said it before. In modern law, you have lawyers, you go in their office, shelves and shelves of books, case laws from all over. You, you have to go, you have to get a whole master's degree to even begin to start doing the law. I mean, it's, it's very, 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 very complicated. Uh, if you don't believe me, read the fine print at the bottom of any <laughs> your cell phone contract. Read the fine print. Right. Teams of lawyers wrote that. That you had to have this specialized knowledge. Well, ancient Near East law wasn't that way. It was paradigmatic. So it said, here's an example of how you're going to rule in this case. Now apply that to cases where it fits. And so the laws, the, the, the judges, and the people that were ruling the people had to be wise. And they had to be honest. And they had to know God's laws from the greatest and how they all trickle down to the lesser situations. So that's what we're in in this covenant code section. And we've just gone into uh, the section about uh, neighbors and how they are to relate to one another in terms of property. And now it's going to move into interpersonal relationships. And it's going to still bridging that gap of, of relating family to family. The first law that we come across in verse 16 in this next section says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Okay, so pause. We're in a society where one, virgin is a bad word, and two, we don't even know what bride prices are. So let's break both of those down. Ancient Near East, it was assumed, this is something that we need to wrap our minds around. The act of sex in the ancient Near East, particularly in Israel, the act of sex was the sealing of the marriage. The marriage was consummated in the sex act. Therefore, if you had sex with someone, you had married them. That was, that, that's what we're working with here. Very different from our single society, our, you know, we're the generation of Seinfeld and Friends and How I Met Your Mother, and everybody sleeps with everybody and it's no big deal. It's just assumed if you're romantically involved with somebody, you're sleeping with them. That's assumed. That's a given in our culture. Exact opposite. But they never sleep. But they never sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lying in the same bed with and doing things. Uh, we'll describe as that. Yeah. The, the, the mindset that we're dealing with here in our culture today is completely different than it was in the ancient Near East, and completely different than it was in the rest of Scripture. The coming together, the sex act itself was the sealing. It was the becoming one flesh. So, in the ancient Near East culture, if you were not married, you had not become one flesh with someone. Therefore, you were available to be married. Therefore, your value 
in the cultural society of the time was still high because when you married, not only did you fulfill your romantic fantasy and you get a new husband or you get a new wife or any of that stuff, but your families joined together. And we saw last week when one family married their daughter off to another family, they lost that daughter's presence in their house. Their daughter was the one who had, you know, the household, everything from household chores to working in the field to carrying on the family business. When you married off a daughter, it was happy because your daughter was married, but you as a family lost a very valuable member of your family. So in order to compensate for that, there was a practice of the bride price where the groom's family would actually pay. They weren't buying the wife. They were saying, we've taken your daughter as a wife to compensate you for the loss that that's going to incur on you financially as a family we are paying a bride price that's what it was now if you're if your view of family is is one way you look at that and you go oh, that's really cool you know families providing for another family as they come together recognizing the value of a daughter seeing that a, losing a daughter to marriage to another family is is a valuable thing and so getting compensated for it you know that's really cool if you come at it from another way, and you're just like, how barbaric, you're buying a daughter and you're trading women like cattle and all of this stuff. It totally depends on how you're looking at it. The scriptural way of looking at it is the first. It's upholding the value of the family, showing the worth of the daughter, and saying, if you take our daughter as your wife, you're taking something precious and valuable from us as a family. And so there's a negotiated, there's a, there's a what's called a bride price. However, this is referring to if a man sees a woman, a girl in the ancient Near East, sees, you know, wherever, and decides, oh, you know, I really, I, I want that woman, <laughs> but doesn't want to have to do the whole formal, you know, oh, it's a piece of paper, what we have is love, who needs the marriage, nonsense, none of that, none of that. Ladies, you probably heard something like that before in today's day and age, but it not happening in the ancient Near East. If you sleep with a woman, you have made her your wife. And all of the responsibilities that you have as a husband are in effect. So you have to pay the bride price to the family. And, and, and you, have to, you have to, in other words, there's no casual sex in the Old Testament. It's, you're married. So you better man up and there's your wife. Now, the caveat was, dads, what if as sometimes happens, your daughter falls for a jerk. <laughs> no, it's rare. <laughs> Heaven forbid she gets seduced by, she gets romantically wooed away by somebody who you look at and you say, oh, no. Um, there was a provision for that. There was a provision. The father could look at the person and say, no, you will not be the husband of my daughter. You will not, our families will not be joined. No. In that case, the man who seduced the woman still had to pay the bride price because he had taken her as his bride. Even though the father forbidden it for the sake of the greater family welfare, uh, there had to be a bride price because also once, obviously once word gets out in a small society that someone has already been you know, intimate with another guy, then that significantly reduced 
the likelihood that somebody else would overmarry. This is a culture that, that prized virginity as something, not because they were, they, they were big on slut shaming or any of the other stuff that modern culture gets all wrapped up in, but because they realized giving yourself to someone sexually is the most intimate thing you can do. And it's the most, um, it, it, scripturally, it's meant to be a permanent deal. It's meant to be a permanent transaction. It's meant to solidify that one flesh union. So when that is done casually or lightly, then even in Israelite society, not, not, not speaking in the realm of morality or ethics, but just in the terms of legal happenings, God built into his people this idea of, yeah, there are consequences to this. This is what the sex act is. Unlike how it was in Egypt, and unlike how it is in Canaan, the Israelites were to have a different sexual ethic. They were to have one that saw sex as the coming together of two people for the purpose of becoming one flesh. And that's not how it was in the world around them. And so God is building into their society a view, not just of property and animals and, you know, worship and festivals, but also of human sexuality. Excuse me, of what it is and what it isn't. He's building that into the fabric of their society. So that then gets us into the realm. Now we're going to move into the realm of ethics in this next section of laws. Of We're sort of, the laws kind of weave in and out through all aspects of society. There'll be some about food laws, and then it'll go into worship laws, and then it'll go into interpersonal business law, and then it'll go into, you know, it, remember, this is, these are extrapolating upon the Ten Commandments and fleshing them out in different situations. So <clears throat> that one uh, had to do with laws excuse me, the Ten Commandments regarding things like adultery, honoring your mother and your father. Those two commandments were kind of wrapped up in this previous law that we just read. Now it's going to get into moving back up to the top towards the first laws, which was not having any other gods before. So the next law in verse 18, 19, and 20, these are three laws back to back, and they're going to be three cases of capital punishment, three things that would forfeit the life of someone if they practice these within the community of Israel. The first law, NIV says, do not allow a sorceress to live. Literally, it says a sorceress shall not live. There's some debate among scholars whether that means a sorcerer. And, and first, the word sorceress is a generic word for anyone who practices the magic arts. Anything from fortune telling to outright pagan worship to casting spells or calling down curses. These are things in the ancient world that had real power to these people. In the book of Numbers, they'll meet in about 40 years from when this takes place. They're going to meet a guy named Balaam who is a sorcerer, and he has real power that really affects things. So scripture takes it for granted that the spirit world exists, and it takes it for granted that not everything in the spirit world is good. This is that's basic ancient Near East worldview. Uh, and so God speaks into that and, and says, one, a sorceress shall not live. Scott, some scholars think that that is saying that sorcery was a death penalty. Others say that the, what that means is, no, a sorceress shall not live, like live among you. In other words, drive her out. Drive out a, you know, a Canaanite or Egyptian priestess or whatever. Later, there will be a law as well that also condemns or says the same thing about uh, men who practice the art, sorcerers or, or magicians. Um, but 
the, the first law is put in place is no sorceress, no, no magic arts, no, because that's all wrapped up in the religions that God is judging by sending Israel into the land of Canaan. The second one of the three, anyone who has sexual relations with an animal will certainly die. NIV says might be put to death, but the literal Hebrew is will certainly die. Again, the question is, is that talking about the people will put them to death, or is that saying God will put them to death? This text leaves it unclear. Later in Leviticus, I think chapter 18, it will deal more specifically with it. But what's up with having sex with animals? Well, you're in an, uh, an agricultural society, and people are sinful. <laughs> so ergo, people, if there's a way to do something sexually messed up, humans will find a way. Spend 10 minutes on the internet, and there's absolute proof of that. Don't actually don't do that. But if you wanted to, you could see anything you can do to make sex as debased and as awful as possible, someone has done it. And someone has probably made a living off of doing it in front of other people. Or getting other people to pay to watch them do it. Or or in any other way. What this is in, in the ancient world, the way it obviously pre-internet, uh, in the ancient world it was usually wrapped up or tied up in the Canaanite fertility cult. In the, in the, so the ancient Near East uh, religion, how it worked, it was all, all of it, almost all of it in every culture in the ancient Near East was fertility based. So if you wanted to have fruitful crops, or if you wanted to have fruitful herds, or if you wanted to have fruitful wombs, have children, then those things were all wrapped up in how much worship and respect and homage you paid to the God that you served. So in Canaan, one of the main gods was Baal. Baal was the god of the storm. He was the god of fertility. His consort, his female counterpart, was Asherah. She was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of the earth. So to get, if you wanted, basically what happens in the heavens would would manifest itself on earth. So if you wanted fertility on earth, then what you had to do was get there to be fertility in heaven. So if you wanted there to be fertility in heaven, the gods had to get it on. And then that would bless you on earth as you got it on. So you would go to a pagan prostitute. You would go to a high place. You would go to a temple prostitute. And you or someone there that you would support in different ways, somebody would get it on. And that would be an act of worship. And that would incite the gods, Baal, Asherah, Marduk, any of the other ancient Greek gods, that would incite them. It would be like putting in a you know, VHS porn tape for the gods upstairs and getting them all hot and bothered. And then they'd go at it. And then you go back home and boom, your crops are now blooming or your womb is now fruitful or your animals are now breeding. It was all wrapped up in sexuality. Sexuality and spirituality were, were, were intertwined. Now that's not the problem. Because as we see in Genesis, from the beginning, sexuality and spirituality were intertwined. So, so the, the, the solution is not to separate spiritual and sexual and say that they're two different things. That's what the Gnostics did. That's what the Greeks did. That's not what the Bible does. But rather to say, no, no, they should be united. But they should be united within the realm of worshiping God alone. Yes, the sect act is sacred when done between husband and wife in the marriage bed then it is an act of worship. It is an act of, uh, it is a sacrament. It is a beautiful thing. When done outside of that, it's not only a bad thing, it's a horrible thing. 
because it debases not only the people involved, but also the very notions of how the universe runs and, and how God is to be worshipped and all of it. It's like taking the very best, greatest thing in the world and making it the worst you can possibly make it. So that's why the penalty was so severe. That's why the costs were so high when it came to sexuality and marriage in the ancient Near East because it was all wrapped up in who their conception of God was. Was he this pagan god that ran around and, and consorted with his different female counterparts in order to, to get the land to produce fruit and, and you know, the wombs to bear children and the flocks to give birth? Or was he the covenant god who blessed sex within the realm of marriage in order to manifest and reflect his love and also to bring forth new life? Two very different understandings of sex. So when there are laws that deal with, you know, one of the ways of debasing that is sex that's not within that realm. Whether it's with multiple partners, whether it's in a temple prostitute setting, whether it's with an animal, whether it's with someone who's the same gender as you and not meant to be your sexual complement. All of these ways that people had of, of distorting God's greatest gift to humanity are talked about in the law and we see that, that we see the view of God towards sexuality and towards worship by looking at the things that he prohibited and the kinds of things that he said these can't take place among you. So then the third one is whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. And that word is harem. It's the word that will later be used to describe when they go in the cities and completely wipe everything out. Everything, you know, no, don't take treasure, don't take their flocks, don't take their herds. Destroy them. It means to devote to God usually through uh, sending up as a whole offering or a whole bird offering. It, it, it's a very specific, and we'll talk about it more when we get to those passages later. But three laws, three capital laws right there that, that at the outset of this next section, God basically saying, I'm serious about who I want you to be, and I'm so serious that these things cannot take place among you. They cannot take place within your society. Now, we know from Israel's history that every single one of them did. Immediately, when Israel gets into the land, they turn away from all of these. Everything on this list, Israel does. And so God will send them prophet after prophet after prophet for hundreds of years before he finally judges them the way he judges the Canaanites and the Egyptians in Genesis and Exodus. So God doesn't play favorites. Um, he, he gives his laws for his people. The next section now, 21 through 27, this next section deals with what has become a bad word in some Christian circles and a great word in other Christian circles, social justice. God is very concerned with social justice. 21, do not mistreat an alien. And obviously, alien means immigrant, not <laughs> alien, all right? Just, Kids have asked that before, and that means that adults somewhere probably asked it as well. <laughs> Do not mistreat an immigrant uh, or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children will become fatherless. God, in this section, he's, he's speaking into how he wants them to, these aren't like laws, as in, this is what you should do in this case. This is, these, are, these are, it shifts from 
the laws before were casuistic case laws, like if this happens, then this happens. Now he's shifting back into apodictic laws, like pronouncements, like this is what you will do, and this is what you will not do. So these are more like have an ethical force behind them. And he's reminding Israel that who they are as a people is grounded in who they were as slaves. He's trying to tell them, hey, remember the last 400 years of your existence? When you get into the land, don't do that now that you're free to other people. That's the, the history shows that the oppressing, the oppressed, when they come to power, almost inevitably always become the oppressors. And that's how you get these cycles of violence throughout history. People were beat down, people were oppressed, they cried out for freedom, they got their freedom. Now that we've got freedom, we're gonna do, you know, we're gonna pay them back. They become the oppressors. And so God is trying to say at the outset, don't do that. Do not be Egypt to people who are dwelling among you like Egypt was to you when you dwelled among them. Don't mistreat the widow and the orphan, the two most um, vulnerable people in Israel society, widows and orphans. They had no legal rights. They had nobody to plead their case in court. They usually had no land that they owned in their name. They were the destitute. They were the, they were the ones who were, the, the widow and orphan is a synecdoche for the needy. It's, it's, it's a figure of speech for the vulnerable. And what God's saying is, don't you treat badly the widows and the orphans, or I will judge you, and then your wives and your children will become widows and orphans. In other words, it was a very strong warning of uphold and protect the rights of the most vulnerable in society. And then he goes on to say, 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Among Israelites, they were not to charge interest to each other. Now this will, this will mess with you in this area because we're in a banking area. <laughs> and this may step on some toes. Apply it as you will, but among God's people, if one of God's people was needy and went to another of God's people for a loan to help them get by, God specifically commanded the person giving the loan, give them the loan and charge no interest. That's a challenge to modern Western capitalism. Now, does that mean that banks shouldn't charge interest ever? That may be a step beyond the text because this is talking about within the covenant community. So a better analogy might be if someone in your church approaches you and you have the means to give them a loan, give them a loan. You just said this stuff was for the Old Testament, those people, not for us, and now you're turning it around. Yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you, because what's still in effect is the principles. It's the principles. It's not the actual laws itself. It's the principles enshrined in those laws. Those never change. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. Paul applied that to the Corinthians. But he said, this isn't about oxen. So this money lending among the people of the there's no covenant community in the Old Testament since today. But the principle behind this, what God's saying is, be generous. Don't give in order to get back and don't exploit someone. The, the ultimate example of this that I would say today flies in the face of covenant justice in the Old Testament would be the predatory payday loan lender type things. The things that prey on the needy and the poor. You know, yeah, yeah, we'll cash your paycheck and then you'll pay us back with 30% interest or whatever. That's the kind of thing that this law 
is directly speaking against in the Old Testament setting. So the principle, the, 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 the heart of God is for the needy and for those that have to be able to be generous towards those that don't have so that then those that don't have, when they get the means, then they can return that or turn that to the other needy. Because if everyone is looking out for everyone, then everyone's needs are being met. And this is what God is doing in Old Testament Israel. He's trying to create a society where everybody, it's not just the case of, remember, this is, I'm independent, so I don't care who politically I annoy. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, I think they're both messed up. But typically, stereotypically, Republicans are individual responsibility. If you don't work, you don't eat. You're poor. You're not going to get my tax money to pay your welfare, blah, blah, blah. Then Democrats, stereotypically, are everyone should have access to everything. If you're rich, you don't deserve that money. You should give it to people who don't have it, and we should all be the same. Okay, both of those get at part of God's covenant justice in the Old Testament, but they both go overboard. What we see in Torah, the laws that God's speaking into Israel as a community is, yes, everyone should be looked out for in some way. However, everyone should be responsible for what they have and, and, and not depend on or rely solely on others. There's a balance of, yes, you need to work. It is biblical. If a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. And that's New Testament. But there's also the Old Testament of do not mistreat the poor, do not charge them interest, give to the needy, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Old Testament. And so biblical ethic takes both of those and holds them up. And where our politics and modern economy and stuff go astray is we try to hold one and forget the other. And, and then point the finger across the aisle at both parties. But in reality, you can find elements of both major political parties and platforms and, and economics views within Scripture. The challenge is holding that balance, taking these laws that were applicable to Old Testament Israel, seeing what they would have meant in that society, and then saying, now what is the heart of God in that law? Because God's laws aren't arbitrary. They aren't just for the heck of it. There's a, there's a principle. And then taking that principle out of that setting, and then looking at our modern culture and saying, now where does this principle apply? Where can I see this principle at work in the modern setting? Just like Paul did with the law against muzzling an ox while he treads off the grain. And he applied that to paying people who minister for you in order to meet their needs. So it's a juggling act that we have to do when we're looking at Old Testament ethics. And it's hard. It's a hard act. Let's, we're going to finish out the last section. Uh, last laws. Do not blaspheme God or curse a ruler of your people. And I says the ruler. It's really A. It's indefinite. Uh, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. Those offerings, by the way, went to feed the poor, the widows, and the orphans in the Old Testament, in addition to feeding the priests. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. This goes back to the Exodus, the Passover, when God said, I've taken the firstborn of Egypt. All of your firstborn have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. But they are all mine. So you will, on the eighth day, you will redeem the firstborn. If it's a human, you will bring a sacrifice in its place. Basically saying, God, you are the true Lord. Our, all the firstborn, whether it's animal, whether it's people, belong to you ultimately. However, you are giving us back our firstborn sons because 
you uh, saved us in the Exodus. It's all, it's, it's theologically based, but it's a way of basically inserting God's sovereignty over even your firstborn offspring, which was like the, the most cherished thing that you could possibly have. So there was this, uh, this built into Israelite society, the first and the best are gods. If it's an animal, it's sacrificed to him and it's enjoyed in the context of a covenant meal and it's used to feed the priest, it's used to feed the widows and the orphans, it's used to worship. If it's a human, God doesn't do human sacrifice, he never asks for it, never desires it. You bring a sacrifice in that human's place and you redeem that firstborn, which means you receive him back and you raise him or her to be a godly offspring and carry on this tradition of worshiping God. So, Again, we'll get to, we'll pick it up. Yeah, this is the end of the chapter. Last one, uh, you are to be my holy people. Do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Don't be scavengers. Don't, don't, do, and there may be some cultic connotations to this, eating animals, but it's also some health regulations. Don't, if you see something dead on the road, you don't eat it. It's probably bad for you. Um, there's a little bit of health in it, but there's also some, this idea of I'm going to provide for you. Don't go around being scavengers. Don't, uh, don't get into the pagan cultic worship rituals. Don't rely on me for your daily bread, and I'll take care of you. That's part of the covenant promises that God's making with Israel. We'll pick it up next week, chapter 23. Uh, he's going to finish out the covenant section, and then he's going to go into the rules for worship, and then there's going to be a little covenant meal. So... We're one minute, two minutes over. Get out of here, back to work. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week.